0: The passage of scripture we're gonna look at this morning uh, as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. We're about a little over halfway through uh, the sermon series and we're looking at the last month or so of Jesus's life. And as Jesus moves to Jerusalem, it's less about uh, the miracles of Jesus and more about the teaching. And this morning, uh, to follow up on what uh, what Pastor Mike did last week, we're going to continue to be challenged with the authenticity of our faith. By the way, this morning, uh, not Pastor Mike, but his wife, Beth, uh, delivered their first child, London, uh, about 6.30 this morning, and everybody's doing great. I got a, I got a text from Mike that said, uh, she's beautiful and so is our daughter. And I thought, what a great line! That guys, I'm, I'm, now all the ladies are here, so you can't use it anymore. But I'm like, I hope he showed that to Beth, because what a romantic line uh, to use for your, your wife right after she delivers. But anyway, they're all doing great. Uh, but this passage uh, in Luke chapter six challenges us, I think, uh, in a way that's very, very close to home for people who live in a culture of wealth, uh, in a society of uh, absolutely having the world at our fingertips. Uh, And Jesus recognizing that and calling us to think a little bit differently than perhaps we do. I read a quote this week that says this, money is only something you need if you don't die tomorrow. (laughs) Money is only something you need if you don't die tomorrow. Now, I, I looked at that quote for several minutes before I think I began to get my mind around what the person was trying to say. And I think what he was pointing to is that there is a necessity of money. You, you do need to be able to provide for your family. You do need to, to earn a living and to have a job and so on and so forth and a roof over your head. And, and as Andy said, the folks we go to serve are trying to do just that. Uh, but, but that statement also says you've got to have some perspective. You can't live just for the pursuit of wealth. You can't live just for the the opportunity to consume more and more. You've got to step back and understand that life is a little bit more than that. I want to suggest to you this morning that that stepping back and taking a good, honest look is much harder uh, than it would appear. We live in a society that has absolutely no balance or no regard uh, for wealth. We are consumed with the idea of consuming greed has actually become a good word in our terminology we live for temporal comfort we want what makes it easy for us and we've begun to believe that the multitude of our possession is that for which we live you've seen the bumper sticker I've seen it too he who dies with the most toys wins exactly we all know that phrase And I want to suggest to you this morning, humbly, uh, as I've used this as a mirror for my own life this week and been convicted, uh, that disciples of Jesus aren't necessarily that much different than the rest of the world when it comes to how we handle our wealth. We tend to have a temporal view instead of an eternal view, and we are challenged every day of our lives as we interact with our world to think in a radically different place. How do we live as Jesus' disciples in a culture that is obsessed with wealth? Green Tree Community Church Spiritual Family, will we follow Jesus and his priorities when it comes to managing our resources? By our resources, I think that means our time and uh, our treasure, our financial resources, as well as our talent, as well as the, the gifts that God has given us and the abilities that he's given us. Will we follow his lead? Or will we look more like the fallen world and its priorities? That's the challenge before the house. I will tell you that this text is kind of an in-between, you know, kind of right between the eyes kind of text. It, It maybe will make you squirm just a little bit and feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I felt uncomfortable all week dealing with it, so I'm going to invite you into my pain. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 and following. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher or rabbi, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared whose will they be So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory Let's pray for just a moment Father when we uh when we look at your word and we look at it uh, in light of the practice of our lives, there are moments where uh, we come under deep conviction. Father, this is one of those texts that uh, challenges uh, 21st century American rich Christians to uh, perhaps feel a bit uneasy. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as we wrestle with these words and as we try to perhaps um, make them say something they're not or brush them aside that, Father, your spirit and your word would penetrate our souls. Father, I pray that we would not see condemnation in this text because that's not why you put it in scripture. It's not here to, to uh, force us to feel bad about ourselves. It's not here to be used as a tool to, to raise money for the church. Father, it is, it is here to give us the keys to life and to help us understand that your kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and that we're, we're playing in a mud puddle when we could be living in a palace. Well, Father, I pray that your spirit, that your word would teach us this morning. Man's word is inconsequential. Lord, Lord, what I have to say is irrelevant. It carries no weight. But your gospel is truth, and it is power and it is life for all who will believe. So Lord Jesus, whether we are here this morning claiming to be your disciple or whether we're here this morning as a cautious skeptic, I pray that you would do one thing for all of us, that you would give us believing hearts. I pray in your name, amen. Well, as we, uh, as we go through this text, I think the, the very first verse, verse 15, uh, gives us what I call uh, a revealing request. Uh, somebody in the crowd has been following Jesus, and again, he's on his way to Jerusalem. There, there are massive throngs of people around him, and in the midst of of this journey, uh, somebody kind of raises his hand and says, Lord, I, gotta, I got something I want to say. And uh, comes before Jesus and he isn't identified other than someone in the crowd. But he says, to the Lord, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this is not an odd request for Jesus's day. It was very normal for the rabbis of Jesus's day to be kind of the arbitrators between folks. And so you could have somebody come to Jesus and, and maybe a couple of friends or, or a couple of family members and say, okay, now, Lord, we, uh, or rabbi, we have this issue. Would you please decide it? And whatever your decision is, we'll, we'll abide by it. This is a very uh, normal thing to happen. But what isn't normal here is that this guy doesn't come asking Jesus to do what's fair. He shows up with this with this revealing request because I believe it speaks to the place of his heart. He doesn't say, Lord, would you uh, listen to my brother's side of it, and would you listen to my side of it, and then would you decide what's fair and right and best for both of us? He's already way down the road past that. He already knows that his brother's a big sinner in this. He knows that his brother's gotten wrong. He knows that his brother is selfish. He knows that his brother is is a hoarder, and he isn't going to let him have some of the inheritance. And so he has not come to Jesus asking Jesus to decide. He's saying, "Lord, I've already figured it out. Now my will be done." He's saying, "Jesus, do what I want you." to do. It's a very uh, revealing request. It shows us the nature of this man's heart, but I think if we're willing to take a look at it personally, it may also perhaps show something about my heart and about your heart. I've tried to examine my prayer life the last couple weeks as I've been building towards this sermon, and and I am uh, ashamed to say that more often than not, I come to God with the phrase, my will be done. Lord, I've got to figure it out. I don't need you to to tell me what direction I ought to go. I need to tell you and I need you to answer accordingly. And Jesus steps back and wants to help this man see the darkness in uh, where he is living and the danger in which he is spiritually, hopefully in order to give him and those who would be willing to listen to his words life. And so this man comes with a revealing request, and he gets a very abrupt answer. Look at verse 14. But he, that being Jesus, said to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Now, the the word man there is not a term that you will find Jesus using in the Gospels. In fact, this is one of the only places that you will see it used because it's a confrontational word. It's a word that means uh, uh, you're a stranger to me. It means that you have a, a different set of priorities. We're not in fellowship together. In fact, I'm going to put my arm—I'm going to put you at arm's length because we're coming from very two uh, two very different places. Jesus, in the in the very word man, is saying to him, "You and I are not on the same page," and he's going to challenge that man to move off of his his page and on. To Jesus is. it's a very strong word. He says, we have very, very different priorities. And then he asks him the question, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And notice that he doesn't wait for an answer to that question. Jesus knows he's the judge. <laughs> he knows he's the ultimate arbitrator, but he wants to get this man's attention. And what he's saying is, are you sure you want to hear what I'm going to say next? Do you really want an answer for what the true question is? Because the true question isn't about the inheritance. It's not about the money. It's never about the money. It's always about the condition of the human heart. Are you sure you want to go there with me? But then he doesn't wait for that answer. He says in verse 15, and he says to all of them, this fellow just happens to be representative of the entire group, but he happens to be our representative, I think, too, this morning. And he says to all of us who will listen, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Jesus does two things. He offers a warning, and then he makes a statement of truth. The first one is the warning. Be on your guard. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in a, in a home that was a ranch-style house, and any of you that, that live in a ranch-style house know that, that it, it kind of has one continuous uh, long hallway that the bedrooms typically are off of it at one end of the house, and the bedroom that I grew up in was all the way at the end of the hallway, and so there were three other doorways that you had to pass to get to my bedroom. Now, I was the youngest in the family. How many youngest in the families do we have? If you're youngest right here, aren't we really misunderstood all the oldest are laughing now, right? You know, yeah, mis- I'll give you misunderstood. All right, you know, uh, we're always picked on. We're always the one that the older siblings, you know, they're, they're always trying to kill us in, in some way. And in our house, we took, I had an older brother and older sister, and, and we all, I, I was in on too, took great pride in scaring one another, just trying to get one another just to fall over dead of, of a heart attack of fright. And so you would get in one of the doorways. And you would wait for somebody to to walk by and then you jump out and, and grab them and just watch them. You know, they run in place or they start crying. It was really a lot of fun. And so when you go down the hallway, you gotta be on your guard. Because you don't know who's gonna jump out. And so I would kind of edge along the wall and I I'd get to the first doorway and I'd kind of go like that to see if anybody was there. And then when I find out that nobody was there, I'd I'd go to the next door. The most scared I ever was was the time I went like that and there was nobody there, and I took the next step and my brother he shot Grammy by the ankle. I was so scared, he was really sorry he was south and grabbed me by the ankle. I'll let you figure that out. But um, I was on my guard. I knew that something was out to get me. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. He says, there's something in your heart that ought to cause you to be on your guard 24-7. You can't miss this because it'll reach out and it'll grab you and it'll be your undoing. What is it? It's covetousness. It's a word that we would use today for greed. If you want a technical translation out of the Greek, it literally is translated an unquenchable thirst. You ever been that thirsty that you just got tunnel vision until you got something to drink? And Jesus says, that's what the the pursuit of wealth will do to you. It will give you tunnel vision. You won't be able to see clearly. It will be unquenchable. And ultimately, in the end, it will kill you. And so you need to be on your guard against this. Why? Why? because of the truth statement he offers. One's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Friends, you have to decide if that's true or not. I have to decide if that's true or not. Is Jesus, is Jesus setting me up? Is Jesus telling me, you know, he just wants me to give more money to the church and so he's gonna guilt me into, into doing it? Or is Jesus offering me the words of life? Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and and that they might have it abundantly. And Jesus says, you're going down the wrong road if you're pursuing abundance instead of pursuing me. And he offers this warning and this statement. Jesus would say, he who dies with the most toys doesn't win. He who dies with the most toys is dead. And he who lives with the most toys as that is his game and that is how it defines his life is spiritually dead. And in order to make a point, Jesus tells a story. Jesus would fit in great at Green Tree because he always tells stories, and we we love to tell stories. And so he tells them this parable, verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Let me give you the setting. This is is a highly successful farmer. Uh, This is a farmer that's been in business for a long time because he's already wealthy. Uh, The story is not such that he's hit the jackpot for the first time, okay? It's not like he's been struggling along in the dirt and just barely making ends meet, just barely able to provide for his family. And this is the first bumper crop he's ever had. That's not how the story goes. Jesus says, this is a rich guy who had another great year. He had another bumper crop. He's already wealthy. Now, we have to be careful here because the statement that Jesus makes is without prejudice. Jesus isn't saying because he's wealthy, he's a bad person. Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture doesn't say that money in and of itself is evil or wealth in and of itself is evil. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the one who was the richest, Jesus, the one who had all of the wealth made himself poor so that you who are poor could become rich in him. Jesus is a wealthy guy. Jesus owns it all. And you look at Scripture, and you see Abraham and Job and Solomon, and you see Lydia in the New Testament, the gal who was the the, the dealer in purple, and she was extremely wealthy and used her money to help the Apostle Paul on his mission trips. Wealth in and of itself is not bad. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is trying to get to here is not that he's, he's guilty by being rich, but rather it's a question of character. The land of a certain rich man produced plentifully what's the question? The question that's raised is, what will he do with that which he has harvested? Will he share it? Will he use it in his community? Or will he keep it for himself? That is a question of character. What will he do with his abundance? What is his priority? Did you hear the, the news story a couple weeks ago? I think it was actually a church in New Jersey where somebody had a $3 million winning lottery ticket. Okay, now this is not a statement on buying lottery tickets, not buying lottery tickets. We can talk about that someday, but, but that, that's not where I'm going. But they had a winning $3 million lottery ticket. So the payout on that, if you take it all at once, is about half. So a million and a half dollars. They put the lottery ticket in the offering plate for the church. And everybody, they interviewed people at the church. And everybody at the church was dumbfounded. Everybody at the church was shocked that that somebody would actually give all of it. They wouldn't just, you know, give a little, you know, 1.5. Okay, so $150,000, that's 10% give to the church and keep the rest. You know, that's kind of what everybody else was thinking. People were shocked. And I dare say, if you haven't heard the story before, you're sitting there scratching your head going, all of it? You got to be kidding me. And yet, and I had the same reaction. And yet, we're people that claim to follow Jesus and be disciples of a different kingdom. You see how insidious it is? (laughs) You see how the seeds of greed are in our hearts, and the warning about character is a warning for you and for me this morning. Andy's story about being able to go through the grocery store and help another family stock up. I've had that experience. Uh, the first year I went, I've been on the trip twice. The first year I went, I got to be one of the people that went to the grocery store with those folks. It's amazing to be on, on, the, on the flip side of that provision and to be able to say, that the, the store is all yours. Take take what you want. Get what you want. We are going to provide. And yet we're so surprised when we see that kind of character in the pages of Scripture and and the lives of disciples. It's a question of character. Unfortunately, this fellow flunks the test because not only do we see this question of his character, but it's answered in an obsession that is observed. Look at verse 17 through 19. Uh, And he's thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This man is obsessed with his possessions. He already has more than he needs. He can't possibly get to the grain that is going to be in these bigger barns, and yet he is not satisfied. His soul is still hungry and thirsty, but because he has allowed greed to possess his soul, he's, he's drinking. Uh, it's like taking dirt when you're thirsty and shoving it into your mouth. It will never satisfy He's obsessed with making it all his own. I went through this this and I took my yellow highlighter and I put a little yellow mark on every time in these three sentences where he says either I or my. Three sentences, 11 times. (laughs) Jesus is trying to get our attention, friends. He's taking an extraordinarily absurd example to make a point about my heart and about your heart. If we're not careful, this is how we will think. We will try to get and gain and hoard, and we will never be satisfied. Um, Cindy, a long time ago, taught preschool. My wife, Cindy, taught preschool uh, back at our church on Lookout Mountain. And one of the things that, that she said early on was that one of the first words uh, that you observe these little two-year-olds and just, just younger than two-year-olds, and they first start learning to really talk and articulate their emotions and their feelings, what do you think is one of the words that, that comes out of their mouth, for, mouth first? Mine. Didn't well, You guys are so smart. Let's just close in prayer. Um, you should be so lucky. I got 10 more minutes to go. Um, mine. Give me, it's mine. A kid, take, hey, they playing with a little toy and somebody comes to take it. No, that that's mine. You know what the sad part is? <laughs> we don't really grow out of that. We don't stray too far from that. And this this rich farmer is a picture of my heart and perhaps of your heart because he ignored the fact that God was providing for him, he ignored the fact that, that, that he didn't uh, become a great farmer because of what he did, but that God wired him that way, that God gave him a green thumb, so to speak, and sent the rain and sent the sun and kept the pestilence away. He ignored God's provision, and he also assumed ownership. What will I do with my things instead of understanding stewardship that these were resources to which God had entrusted him? And maybe most importantly and most sadly, he ignored his own mortality and he ignored eternity. I have many years left to eat, drink, and be merry. He thought he was in control. The psalmist realizes how dangerous this way of thinking is and how pervasive it can be in our own hearts. And so in Psalm 39, he writes this this admonition to himself, and he writes it in the form of a prayer to God. In verse 4 of of chapter 39 of the Psalms, it says this, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hands' breadths and my lifetime is nothing before you, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. This poor farmer, because that's really what he was, he wasn't rich, he was spiritually bankrupt, doesn't see his own poverty. He doesn't see his own dilemma. And the sad part of this is think of what could have been. Think about the poor in his own community. Think about the people who perhaps had uh, were down on their luck, so to speak, or trying hard to provide for their families and couldn't quite make it. Think about the impact they could have had. Think about the grace that was his opportunity to bestow upon others. Think about the riches he could have had in Christ, so to speak, by coming alongside others and providing for them, and he let it all go. He threw it all away. Does this describe us? I know it can describe me. And it comes to a catastrophic conclusion. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, the one who's really in charge, Fool this night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's a strong word, isn't it? We don't let our kids call each other fools or at least when they were little, we wouldn't let them use that word you know we wouldn't let them call each other stupid, you can't call somebody a fool, and yet God uses a very strong word, and he's not out of line by using it. What is the definition biblically of a fool? Go back to Psalm 53, the very first line. In Psalm 53, it gives it to you very clearly and very succinctly. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And this man was living as if there was no accountability, as if there wasn't a day where he was going to have to stand before God and give an account for all that he had done or not done, the choices he had made or the choices that he had left undone. He was responsible, and now it comes to a catastrophic conclusion. He was wise in his own eyes, and yet God's opinion of him was radically different. He lived as if he were the final arbiter of the matter. He thought he was accountable to no one, and so he says, enjoy it. It's all yours. Have the final word. Eat, drink, and be merry. He practiced what my friend Joe Trad calls situational atheism. In that particular moment, when he had the opportunity to believe in God, and he probably grew up going to to temple and knowing all of the Old Testament, he was a situational atheist. He refused to believe in God. And Jesus says, friends, that's what wealth can do to you if you're not careful, if you're not on your guard. And Jesus concludes his story by offering a word to the wise in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Ignoring the heart of God in this life has stark eternal consequences. To refuse the grace of God, to think that you are the one who controls your destiny, to refuse the cross of Christ, to not accept the riches of God, to not understand that you are poor and broken and spiritually naked and allow Christ to cover you with his righteousness is the epitome of foolishness. And all that's left, if you reject Christ, is to run after what this world's offer offers. And it is a paltry substitute. It is no substitute at all, but it is that for which people choose every day of their lives. And they're self-obsessed on their way to hell. And Jesus says, be warned. You've got to think differently if you're going to be in my kingdom. My kingdom is a kingdom that is rich toward God. What does that mean? It simply means that I'm going to make God's priority my priority. What's God's first priority? That I call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. If you haven't done that, that's the first starting point. This isn't about giving money to a church so you buy your way into heaven. God forbid, that's not even close to the truth. This is about understanding your spiritual poverty and putting your faith in Christ for salvation, but then disciples, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus from that moment forward, it means a life of honesty. It means a life of of believing the truth of the gospel and applying it to our lives so that I can raise my hand first and say, I'm the greediest person in this world. Trust me, say that's true. And yet know that Christ can change my life. And know that it doesn't have to be that way. And I can put my trust and my hope in him. And the way that works its way out, there's too many stories to tell. One of the ways it works out is pulling three shopping carts around a grocery store, Tijuana. The way it works out in our household, there's a picture on the, the refrigerator of little J. I can't even pronounce her name. She's got 30 letters in her name. Our little compassion girl that we sponsor who lives in India works out in a lot of different ways. It works out a lot of you going through the hallways of this building on Sunday mornings into classrooms and using the talents that God has given you to share with little ones, the glory of Jesus. I beg you, I plead with you to live with an eternal perspective, the riches that Christ wants to offer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so easily satisfied with the things that just don't count. Father, if I were to spend the next hour or so recounting all the ways in which I chase after the wrong things in this life, I wouldn't get through my list. Lord, we're about to sing I Surrender All. And I think I figured it out that I surrender about 37.6%. Father, may this be the prayer of our hearts. That we've experienced your grace and your mercy through the cross of Christ. And now we want to live in the shadow of that cross. And we want to have an eternal perspective, not a temporal perspective. And yet, Father, it's so hard. We live in a world that just blasts us with information about what else we need. And how the spiritual hunger of our soul can be met by the products of earth. And Father, we bought into that lie. So I pray this morning that as we sing this song, as we sing, Take My Life, that we would sing them as prayers to you, that we would cry out to you, God, that you would change my heart today, that you would maybe continue changing my heart or begin the process for the first time. Give me an eternal perspective. That you have met my need in Christ Jesus and you now give me the freedom to lay aside all the stuff that the world says is important and to follow kingdom priorities, to be rich towards you, to give my life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others who are poor might become rich in Him also. I pray in Jesus' name.